Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Have you heard of the quest for the historical Jesus? This has been going on for two and a half centuries. It has produced a massive amount of literature and occupied the minds of some of the most impressive biblical scholars over the years. What's it all about? Why do we need to search for the historical Jesus? Isn't he right there in the Gospels that we find in the New Testament? My guest today is Craig Blomberg, whose new book, Jesus the Purifier, lays out a thorough yet accessible survey of the four quests for the historical Jesus. He also explains why Bible-believing Christians should care about critical scholarship. Lastly, he describes how his own work on the Gospel of John has revealed some exciting insights that challenge the church today. Here now is episode 513, The Historical Jesus and the Gospel of John with Professor Craig Blomberg. Welcome to Restitutio. I'm your host, Sean Finnegan, and today I'm talking with Craig Blomberg, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of New Testament at Denver Seminary, where he taught for over 30 years. Uh, He's the author of many books, including Can We Still Believe in God? Can We Still Believe in the Bible? Neither Poverty Nor Riches, and several commentaries beyond that. And I understand you're working on another commentary now, Uh, Welcome to the show, Professor Craig Blomberg. So glad to have you today. Thank you for having me. So today we're talking about your new book, Jesus the Purifier, and uh, that's published by Baker Academic. You begin your book with a lengthy summary on the quest for the historical Jesus. Now, a lot of my audience probably hasn't done much business with that. Listeners to the show tend to come from more of a Bible-believing perspective than a, an academic, although there are, there, you know, it's a mixed audience. But uh, I wonder if you could just describe a little bit, why is there a quest for the historical Jesus in the first place? And uh, just get us, kind of get us started on why you felt like that was important to cover before getting to the, the work you did on John. There was a German Renaissance man, uh, prodigy, scholar, concert pianist, medical doctor, psychiatrist and missionary to West Africa that many people will have heard of, even if they have not heard the title of his book. And his name was Albert Schweitzer. He lived into his 90s. I actually remember seeing uh, black and white documentary interviews with him when I was in grade school, which means it had to have been before I turned 10 because uh, he died in 1965, the year I turned 10 shock of white hair going in every direction. And he wrote a book at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century called The Quest of the Historical Jesus. He surveyed long before access to all the helps for research we have today, just an astonishing number of late 18th and 19th century writers about Jesus mostly German, but then uh, right at the tail end of that period, uh, a few French and a few English who were writing books about Jesus and writing from the perspective that we don't just repeat what everybody else in the church has said before us. 
we don't just assume that every word in all four Gospels is true and nothing else anywhere is true about Jesus, but we try to function like uh, historians doing research on some ancient historical figure. And they came from all kinds of different perspectives and came up with all kinds of different portraits of what Jesus was really like. And in wonderful German, everyone else is wrong and I'm right fashion, Schweitzer, at the end of the day, uh, while granting that many people had gotten things partially right, wound up and said, um, here's what the Jesus of history should be understood to be, someone who was passionately driven by the belief that the kingdom of God was at hand that would usher in the end of the world as we understood it. And at first, Jesus thought he could do this within his own lifetime, but increasingly realized it was going to take his death to bring it about. But even then, what happened after he died was not too much like what he had been hoping for, which was a very millennial, eschatological, apocalyptic, brand new world type of kingdom. Had he been alive to see what happened, Jesus probably would have been very uh, defeated and disappointed. That book, not only in its publication, in multiple languages, but in its effect on scholarship throughout the 20th century uh, was just staggering. Schweitzer in the 1950s won the Nobel Peace Prize for his missionary work, but a lot of people, left wing, right wing, center wing, if there is such a thing as a center wing, in seminaries and Bible colleges were introduced to Schweitzer's work and Anybody who wanted to write about Jesus from a scholarly point of view, if they didn't go back to before Schweitzer, they at least had to start with him and move on from there. Yeah, it's interesting. I always kind of connect these two events together in my head, but you have Albert Einstein's discovery or publishing on special relativity in 1905, and then the other Albert uh, Schweitzer in 1906 with the quest for the historical Jesus. Of course, everyone's heard of Einstein, but uh, Schweitzer was no slacker mentally. I mean, this guy was a genuine polymath with skills in organ, concert organ player, and a medical doctor, you know, definitive Jesus scholar. He got into Paul later on. Yes. Uh, who knows what else? You know, he probably uh, had a bunch of other accomplishments as well. And probably about twice as tall as Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, he was a missionary and he uh, served the, the poorest of the poor in what became, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Gabon, uh, Africa. West Africa. West and, Africa. Uh, so, near the town uh, of Lamborghini, yes. Extraordinary, extraordinary man. Uh, can we back up a little more? Sure. I know you started with Schweitzer, but um, let's talk about Hume and Rimeris. Uh, because that seems to be really the starting point. Schweitzer's kind of like the end of the first period, right? Right. What happened there? Why Why were these people questing in the first place? Hume was a philosopher, Scottish philosopher, as you mentioned, in the late 18th century. 
who became also very famous and influential in his day because of a spin that he put on his conviction that you couldn't believe in miracles. Uh, unlike people who just flat out said, modern science has shown they can't happen. Hume said, no, if we're honest, we can't say that. Science's uh, purview does not extend that far. But what we can say is that there is always a more likely explanation for an alleged miracle than uh, attributing it to the supernatural itself. As a product of his day, and if not height, certainly uh, years in which the British Empire seemed uh, locked into world history as a major historical force. He looked around uh, himself in the Scottish church uh, in a world that would never have imagined internet or even any slower fast news and saw nothing like a miracle. He occasionally heard of reports uh, coming from other parts of the empire of spectacular miracles among Africans, among South Asians, but always dismissed them as uh, the product of a primitive mind. And people who researched Hume in the latter part of the 21st century dug up some remarkably racist statements that even some of his supporters weren't aware that he made, that these, these people uh, can't be believed, they can't be educated, they can't be trained. And as a result, he won the day in a lot of scientific and philosophical thinking. Today, if you look in the philosopher's wing of the academic guild, Hume is largely discredited, uh, saying, you know, that's just a priori bias. There's no way you can say that without examining the actual claims, what the evidence is for testimony. But in his day, he was very influential. He was influential over a man named Samuel Ramaris. You mentioned him, who was one of the early writers uh, to try to come up with uh, another explanation for uh, the life and uh, significance of Jesus. And in many ways, Ramaris was one of the first to come up with the idea that uh, Jesus was a, a literal but failed revolutionary hoping to overthrow uh, Rome. So, in a sense, this initial quest was, well, let me ask you, was it a concern to, what, rehabilitate Jesus so that the intelligentsia would take the Gospels and the historical Jesus seriously in light of Hume's attack on the supernatural, or was it something else driving it? It all depended on uh, which writer you were reading. Many people will have heard of, of Friedrich Schleiermacher, who wrote around the 1830s and 40s in particular, and, and one of his famous philosophical works was entitled On Religion for Its Cultured Despisers. Uh, and that pretty much does uh, summarize what, what Schleiermacher was trying to do. Others were simply wanting to come out from under the, the shackles, as they would have put it, of centuries-old church dogma and rethink issues for the first time for themselves without presupposing the Bible is inerrant, without presupposing that 
all major church doctrines are true and inviolable. And so uh, some of them were, uh, I suppose we might say, much more rebellious in spirit. Sort of like applying the Enlightenment to Scripture and, you know, finding scientific, a scientific approach as opposed to a, um, a traditional approach or a dogmatic approach. You, you had another category that was somewhat a combination of those two with uh, deism, uh, the view that uh, God existed, but that once he created, uh, the famous analogy was like the old fashioned days when you wound a watch or a clock, he set everything in motion, but then just took his hands off and let it run. There was a dismissal of miracles there also uh, for a still different reason that God simply had chosen not to intervene in the normal course of events. In a sense, that was a rejection of traditional church dogma. But in another sense, that was also, at least by a number of the writers like H.E.G. Paulus, a way to say there are rational, natural, naturalistic explanations for what look like miracles. We don't have to do what Thomas Jefferson so famously did, and take his New Testament and cut all the miracle stories out of it, literally, with the scissors. We just need to interpret them differently. Yeah. So the first quest was an attempt to recover Jesus, the actual historical Jesus, from the superstitious accounts of the Gospels. I'm just trying to say it in words that they would have agreed with. Um, From from the theological overlay of centuries, that combined history and myth might be the way that many would. And then... At the end of this period of the mostly the 1800s, Schweitzer comes along and says, you're all wrong. You're all making a Jesus in your own image. You're looking down a well and seeing your own reflection and projecting that onto Jesus. Of course, he never did that. But his work is so devastating. His review of the questers who came before him was so devastating that basically a lot of people remember the period after this. Uh, the period which is you know leading up to World War One as a no quest period before the second quest initiated. Now in your book you nuance that and you explain that it was a diminution of uh, the quest. Not in a it's right. not like everyone in the world just stopped thinking about Jesus for fifty years or whatever. I wonder if you could talk about uh, what what got things going again with this second quest. Uh, for the historical Jesus. Well, one of the towering figures who lived and and wrote and published during the period of both world wars and beyond was uh, a German New Testament scholar and philosopher by the name of Rudolf Bultmann. Bultmann was a a faithful Lutheran churchgoer. Um, He had the reputation of actually caring about his students and wanting them to do well, which wasn't necessarily the uh, stereotype of German academics who often tended to be seen as more aloof from their students. If, if you want to study with me, fine. If you can hack it, fine. Otherwise, <laughs> Boltmann also uh, wedded uh, some of his understandings of, of history with a kind of existential philosophy. Uh, today, I think we would call it postmodernism that involved living in the moment and what a philosopher named Heidegger had uh, 
developed the concept of authentic existence, responding to God as you understood his call on your life in the moment without too much reflection on another life or another world. Of course, watching the horrific events of two world wars, which Germany lost in both instances, had a huge effect on this because the church, which in, in Germany was primarily either Lutheran or Catholic, had traditionally spoken so much of the life to come that it did not have anything like the kind of effect on uh, social, political, cultural issues of the day that it could have stopped Hitler early on had it wanted to. And by the time some people wanted to, it seemed like it was too late and he was too powerful. It was a group of Boltmann's former PhD students at a reunion at the university where Boltmann taught in Marburg in Germany in the early 1950s who got together and gave papers and talked about a new quest for the historical Jesus. So that answers your question of where and when it revived, but it really was a, a response to Boltmann, who went through several phases in his career, but at one point was famous for saying, we can almost know nothing about Jesus other than that he existed. The German word for that is das, with two S's. The German word for the in the neuter uh, gender is das with one S. The, the word for near, M-E-R-E, is blosse. And so the famous expression was das blosse das, the mere thatness of Jesus. Yeah, he existed. Okay, that's about all we can say. And the new quest was in many ways saying, wow, we can say a whole lot more. Man, that makes uh, the Jesus Seminar and, and Funk and Crossan look like a bunch of conservatives uh, in comparison <laughs> to Boltman. Uh, but you do, you do take pains to point out that Boltman was part of the Confessing Church. Yes. And, uh, you know, so we shouldn't make a villain of him. Uh, he did do the hard thing in the time when it cost, would cost him the most. So I think we should factor that into our historical yep. assessment. Yep. But... Uh, he was big into form criticism, and you talk about that a lot in the book, and uh, really puzzling over that period prior to the written Gospels. Uh, right. I don't know if you want to mention anything about that in light of the second quest uh, and the role that that played, just to, to let people know, you know, a, a characterization of that second quest. Form criticism, which, which dominated um, the first half of the 20th century in more skeptical New Testament scholarship, believed that the teachings, the accounts of Jesus' deeds that were passed along by word of mouth by anybody's account for at least 30 years or so after Jesus' death would have been embellished, would have been reworded, would have been reapplied, would have been supplemented in all kinds of ways that meant one had to come to the gospel accounts and like peeling an apple or stripping layers off an onion, 
try to remove all these later accretions and get back to some kind of historical core that Jesus really said or did. And you mentioned the, the Jesus Seminar of the 1990s. In, in many ways, they saw themselves as carrying on that tradition of Boltmann and foreign critics a generation later. By the late 1950s, and some of the players in redaction criticism were the identical individuals, Gunter Bornkamp and, and Ernst Kesemann particularly, who were uh, key players in the new quest for historical Jesus, the focus had shifted to whatever the four gospel writers received by the time they came to write accounts of Jesus down, what was it that they wanted to emphasize? How did they arrange their material? How did they highlight key themes? How did they differ one from another? How did they perhaps either through other traditions or their own imagination supplement what they inherited? But at least that allowed for conscious editorial activity that theoretically could be examined, evaluated, rather than just seeing them as uh, compilers of disparate bits of information they had gotten from here, there, and everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so this second quest typically would date to starting in the 1950s and go up until when? Uh, late 70s, usually. Signs already in the 70s. The things were changing. The early 1980s was still a period of transition. Uh, if you uh, didn't see anyone on the landscape as really making a change, by the time a scholar uh, spent much of his years uh, teaching at Duke, but was in both England and Canada before that. Uh, E.P. Sanders uh, wrote a book in 1985 called Jesus and Judaism, and the title says it all. Uh, it's time to put Jesus back squarely in the framework of early first century Judaism in Israel, which previous scholars to varying degrees had not always adequately done. It's no surprise that the most influential writers uh, consistently, with a few exceptions, were German prior to this time. And prior to this time, you had all the anti-Semitism leading up to and then dominating World War II and then not suddenly vanishing the day the Allies liberated, occupied Europe, but took about a full generation to significantly subside. So with this uh, now third quest, we have a shifting, and I, I love this, that they shift towards asking the question, well, wait a second, Jesus was a Jew. So we need to interpret him, like newsflash, uh, He's been a Jew the whole time, but uh, newsflash, he's a Jew. So like, let's interpret him in light of Second Temple Judaism. Right. And this really led to a lot of insight into understanding Jesus from a Jewish perspective. Uh, you mentioned E.P. Sanders. I read his Jesus book. What was it called? Like the historical life of Jesus? Well, he did a follow-up that's uh, slightly more 
popular version called the historical figure of Judaism. Historical figure. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. But before that, the, the was, real scholarly tome was just called Jesus and Judaism. Yeah. Perhaps my professor spared me by not having me. Quite probably. <laughs> read a <my> longer <laughs> one. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, that's a huge movement of scholarship, the third quest. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? And uh, also, let's talk about the criteria of authenticity, because I think yeah. that's a second quest thing, right? But it certainly is dominant in the third quest as well. Right. If you go all the way back to the 19th century, um, you find people, as Schweitzer rightly to a certain degree pointed out, starting from a philosophical perspective that they're committed to, and then saying, let's try to understand Jesus through this lens, because we believe this is, is uh, the proper way. Even Boltmann uh, began at times, especially in a book called History of the Synoptic Tradition, where he was not nearly as skeptical as saying we can only know that he existed, began to say, let's develop criteria appropriate to the task uh, similar to what historians of other ancient figures would try to develop. The New Quest, his students uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s refined these further. And then analysis of them became a full-fledged cottage industry in the Third Quest. What does an alleged teaching of Jesus, a parable, a uh, story of some debate with Jewish leaders, uh, longer discourse, uh, individual proverb, a miracle story. What, what do we look for? What would uh, classical historians of ancient Greece and Rome look for? And where do we find things in the Gospels that seem reasonably to pass these tests? Some, some of them are fairly non-controversial. The more that you find independent testimony to an event on balance, the more likely you can have confidence in it. Unfortunately, sometimes people uh, then added in the proviso that, well, if something is only mentioned by one author, then we can't trust it. Well, by that criterion, we would take much of what exists in our world civilization textbooks out uh, because uh, the nature of, of how little evidence has survived for so many things from 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 years ago. One of the criteria that was, was very influential and very much discussed was what became known as the criterion of dissimilarity, or more specifically, double dissimilarity, so that when you found Jesus saying or doing something that we just don't have any record out of the pretty voluminous material we have of other ancient rabbis as well as Second Temple Jewish literature. It just does not seem like something that was done or said in Judaism. And on top of that, it does not seem to have been a dominant theme of the early church, like, for example, the title Son of Man, Jesus' favorite designation for himself. Nobody else in the Gospels ever calls him that. It's only he uses for himself. It's not 
an established title in Judaism. There's an influential passage in Daniel in which a person like a son of man, a human being, is uh, carried on the clouds and ushered to the Ancient of Days, a name for God, and, and becomes quite a, a spectacular figure. But uh, there does not seem to have been uh, a lot of Jewish reflection on who this son of man was. And then you just don't find people using it. The rest of the New Testament speak of then. Then here's something that's uh, bedrock solid history. Kingdom of God, to a certain degree, you can do the same thing with. God is certainly king throughout the Old Testament, but you never find that actual phrase, the kingdom of God. You do find it elsewhere in the New Testament, but relatively infrequently compared to the dozens and dozens of uses in the Gospels, especially the Synoptic Gospels. It seems like Paul and John substitute ideas like justification by faith and eternal life for what Jesus and the synoptics meant by the kingdom of God. So questions about criteria certainly uh, certainly came to the fore in a big way. So the criteria of authenticity are driven by a skepticism towards the historical reliability of the Gospels, would you say? They certainly were initially, but then even more conservative scholars said at times, well, yeah, there's, there's certainly value to engage in the exercise that doesn't require everyone participating to begin with the same presuppositions. If we can come up with reasonably good criteria, even if we don't start from a position of historical skepticism, wouldn't it be interesting to find out how much would seemingly pass these criteria and should it turn out to be that the kind of orthodox Jesus that the church has long proclaimed could be demonstrated even from less than 100% of the gospel information, that would have a, a strong apologetic value. And so there have been people who have come at it from that angle also. Yeah. Yeah, I want to explore that a little bit more in, in a minute. Uh, in your book, you mentioned John Meyer and his mm -hmm. three Jesuses, the real Jesus, the canonical Jesus, and the historical Jesus. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, just to explain sure. what we're doing on the historical side a little bit. Well, the real Jesus is uh, everything that Jesus of Nazareth, the man who lived in Israel in the first century, ever did, just like the Real Sean Finnegan is the sum total of everything you've done from the first cry that you gave outside your mother's womb on the assumption that you cried at some point down to down to today. And of course, we don't have a, a comprehensive account of the real anybody. So that's like the total person. Exactly. But you <laughs> cannot ever get at that unless you are that person. Well, and if you have the ability to remember more than any human has ever remembered. Because I don't remember the first couple of years of my life either. Right. And I don't so it's sort of like God's of perspective on the person. Then. <laughs> so let's talk about the canonical versus the historical. Yeah. Canonical simply means everything we can learn about Jesus in the Bible. And historical Jesus is everything we can learn about Jesus from those parts of the Bible that we believe are probably historically true, 
along with anything from any other sources that might impinge on the life of Jesus that we think probably are historically true. All right. So a lot of Christians would would stumble on that last couple of sentences because we believe that the canonical Jesus is historically true. So what are you talking about what is probably historically true? Just if you could explain that a little bit. That, that which, by whatever criteria you have developed, you say there's, there's some kind of corroboration, there's some kind of fit. It doesn't necessarily require saying that what you can't corroborate isn't true, although some people have used it that way. It's a way of saying, right, my father was junior high and high school Spanish teacher for 37 years in Rock Island, Illinois. What can I say about him that goes beyond my personal memories? And maybe if you want to make the analogy a little better, and that also goes beyond the personal memories of, I can't say three siblings because I only had one, but we'll take my brother and a couple of other close relatives. There are things that my brother and I disagree about. And of course he's wrong, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) and he would say every bit as adamantly I'm wrong. Okay, so we'll bracket those not going to settle those debates. Uh, It doesn't mean one of us is right. It just means they don't pass the criteria. Let's see what we can find in uh, records of the archives of Rock Island High School in Illinois. And let's see who else we can interview who was one of his students, many of whom are still alive, etc. So um, it's not everything that the four people closest to him remember and claim, but it's also more than the four people closest to him remember and claim. You mentioned two reasons, uh, and I suspect you have more, why believers, Bible-believing people, should care about the quest for the historical Jesus. Could you get into those a little bit? Just kind of explain why somebody who already believes in Jesus and already recognizes the Gospels as reliable would have a reason to get into this whole this whole world, really. You're right. I have more than two, so I'll see if I'm remembering the same two that you are. I mean, one answer is, do you ever plan on talking to anybody about your faith who doesn't already share it? If not, you really ought to consider doing that sometime. <laughs> That's part of what being a Christian involves. And so what do you say when they say, well, I don't believe the Bible is all true. You can't just use that as your starting point and then have any further conversation. And a second reason is that uh, you may be like those people today who say, God said it, I believe, and that settles it for me. But next year, you may start to have doubts. A lot of people do. Then what do you do if uh, you don't have anything else but your previous faith to fall back on? And that's what you're now doubting. Yeah. Would you say that the canonical Jesus is not just who Jesus was, but also how God, I mean, I'm just going to use Christian language here because I'm 
a Christian, sure. but uh, you know how God worked through these authors to to what relay truth about Jesus. You know, a sort of theologize in addition sure. to that, that's part of what I mean. The whole idea of a biblical canon is itself a, a theological concept, right. a Christian concept. So absolutely. So then, the historical Jesus is those things about the real Jesus that we can prove using historical methodology. Or at least make reasonably probable. Okay, so that's too strong of a word, prove, that we can apply standard historiography to and have some sort of like criteria that others who are not Christians would also agree with. And therefore, it gives it a strength in apologetics and evangelism that just saying, I believe it, that settles it, this is my Bible, doesn't, you know, that doesn't persuade. Who was Muhammad? I don't know of any serious historian that doubts that he was an incredibly significant religious man whose life overlapped the late 500s and early 600s, and that he was responsible in some unspecified way for uh, the contents of most, if not all, of the Quran. Okay. Are you saying then that... uh, you are a Muslim, and you believe that this was divinely dictated to Muhammad, and that it has been perfectly preserved through the centuries, and that everything it teaches, including the places where it both agrees with and disagrees with the Bible about some of the characters you find in it, is completely true? No, that would be a canonical Muhammad. Uh, that's a good analogy same same parallel all right well let's go back to the third quest the third quest is when i got sucked in sometime (laughs) (laughs) sometime in the 2000s i think my to use like a gateway drug analogy my first exposure was uh bart ehrman's uh jesus the apocalyptic prophet um where he gave a nice summary not as detailed and certainly not at all nuanced like the one you give in Jesus the Purifier. Uh, But it was sort of an entry point where he went through the various German scholars, mostly Germans, and uh, shared the history of it. Then, boy, I don't know. I just kind of got into reading these Jesus books. You know, I read Dale Allison's uh, book, which I enjoyed, uh, Paula Fredrickson's, E.P. Sanders, number of others. I read Lee Strobel's book. All his books are a case for this, case for that. Case for the Real Jesus or the Histor... I don't remember what it was. He was kind of just uh, uh, hand-waving it. But then um, a book I want to ask you about is... Well, then there's Amy Jo Levine's book, too. But uh, then the Mm -hmm. book I want to ask you about is Luke Timothy Johnson's book, because that was such a fascinating critique. And I would have to say that that probably contributed to the ending of the third quest, if we can even be so bold as to say that the third quest has ended. I know that's up for debate. But in in Luke Timothy Johnson's book, I I think maybe it was called The Real Jesus or something Mm -hmm. like that. He went through and, you know, he was mostly taking the Jesus seminar to task. Uh, But, you know, he goes through all these different Jesuses that everyone's using these sophisticated criteria of authenticity to validate or to, to discern and he's saying, look, you're all using the same criteria and you're getting a different Jesus. Something's wrong. So I wonder if you could comment a little bit on that, like kind of ending of the third, beginning of the fourth quest period. 
Well, Luke is a gentleman and a, a gracious scholar. I've had the privilege of meeting him a few times, though I can't say that I know him well. And I would not want to say anything that, that would upset him, but I think it might be giving him a little bit too much credit to say that he helped to end the, the third quest. Uh, his book came out in 95, and there were just a branch of Jesus' books. Uh, there were a lot of books after that. Up, yeah, I didn't realize it was that early. All the way up to about 2010, 2011. Now, the last decade has seen uh, a significant diminution of third quest books, which is why some are talking about a fourth quest. But Johnson's perspective is very much one to be um, assessed and, and dealt with because it is very much similar to what you mentioned before. Just believe. Just follow the canonical Jesus. The historical Jesus will give you so many uh, diverging pictures. You're not going to accomplish anything. And if you pick one of them, who's to say you picked the right one? Now, Again, I think that's a bit overly pessimistic. One of the other interesting features of the publications that, that span the very late 90s to the beginning of the 2010s is that, in fact, they are remarkably similar in many basic events that they take to be uh, historical about Jesus. Uh, there are differing degrees to which uh, people can add on to that. But the idea that Jesus, an early first century Jew, whose life intersected with a prophet by the name of John the Baptist, who was baptized by John, who preached about the arrival of the kingdom, and as a general headline over uh, his ministry, the same as John did, preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He illustrated and challenged people through all kinds of parables about the present and future coming kingdom. He had conflicts with various groups of more traditional Jewish leaders over interpretation of the law, of the Torah, and especially uh, the Pharisaic additions that had been given to the Mosaic law that he probably ministered both in Galilee and in Judea, but was viewed as a, a Galilean, much more so with some of the distinctives of uh, that part of Israel, only just scratching the surface in, in what I'm saying. And then you can go through each phase of his life all the way through the crucifixion and, and find some remarkable agreement, which itself, maybe one of the reasons that the third quest began to peter out because people are saying, right, that's about as far as we can take it if we're going to use these criteria. And yes, we can tweak the criteria and we can talk about certain passages, certain themes. By 2010, 2011, what was unheard of in the mid 20th century was now commonplace. Jesus actually did think of himself as some kind of a countercultural messiah. And um, if not all the exact titles that he appeared to apply to himself, like son of 
God or Lord or Christ, certainly implicitly through his behavior, through his intimate relationship with his heavenly father, through the remarkable authority with which he made his proclamations, with the ways that he appeared to accept worship, dot, 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 dot. He had a pretty robust opinion of himself as the heavenly sent, end times final envoy, eschatological prophet slash son of David slash Messiah. If Boldman is in his grave, he'll be rolling. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, at the end of the the third quest, you have kind of a convergence. Is that what you're saying? Where people are kind of coming to somewhat of an agreement on the broad strokes, at least of like, all right, this is where we're at. But then the gospel of John you know, gets gets discovered. <laughs> it's been there the whole time, but the usefulness yeah. for the historical quest of the Gospel of John, Paul Anderson and his uh, SBL group. What, what was that called? Right. John Jesus John. What what is it? John Jesus in history. Yeah. John Jesus in history. So share a little bit about that movement. Uh, if if you, I don't want to hold you here if you got to go, but um, uh, pretty soon. <laughs> uh, yeah, just yeah. in a brief uh, way, share about that and uh, lead us in a little bit to the second half of Jesus the Purifier. I guess people have to buy the book if they want to see your <laughs> exciting uh, conclusions of in, in introducing John into the, the mix. Or or at least find electronic form or whatever. But yeah, another John, Cambridge-based Anglican bishop named John Robinson, 1950s and 1960s, who on the one hand first became best known for a book called Honest to God, in which he (laughs) seemed to be questioning a lot of the standard approaches to the deity of Christ. This would have been the time of all of the uh, ideological upheavals of the 1960s, which I'm so. The Myth of God incarnate books were out there Uh, too. Exactly. Yeah. At the same time, he began writing on the side about the Gospel of John and had just about completed a large book when he suddenly passed away in the 1980s, but a colleague uh, wrapped it up and published it posthumously, in which he said, we have inappropriately neglected lots of information in the fourth of the four Gospels that passes historical criteria every bit as well, and occasionally maybe even better than a lot of the material in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This came on the heels of another blockbuster book called Redating the New Testament, came out in the late 70s, in which Robinson argued that Every single book, including all of John's writings, which not even conservatives were saying this about, could be dated before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And so you had, which Robinson are we interested in? The conservative Robinson or the liberal Robinson? Well, the priority of John is certainly an important book for our our topic here. It is. That spawned ever-growing trickle that probably turned into a nice stream or a brook 
never a full-fledged river of studies on uh, John and history until um, the beginning of this century, I think it was 2002 or thereabouts, when a man who had already shown considerable interest in John, a more evangelical Christian, a Quaker, member of the Friends Movement, uh, teaching at George Fox University in Oregon, Paul Anderson, organized a seminar that brought a wide swath of scholars to the table, not all of them at all agreeing with him, but many of them thinking that, yes, there was more to be recovered from John. Over the next 10 years or so, they too began to uh, amass a list and not everyone's was identical, but the idea that Jesus' ministry actually did last about three years, give or take, which you get only from John, that there was a period before his major public ministry in Galilee that included the events uh, that we have in John 1 through 4, if not everything that's said there, at least a key core of, of each of the episodes that are described. The idea that Jesus and John the Baptist overlapped in ministry, much more so than you would guess if you just read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that perhaps Jesus himself, maybe just at the beginning of his ministry, but maybe for longer, through his disciples, baptized people, that issues involving water and ritual purity, hence Jesus the purifier, loomed much larger, uh, especially early on, in Jesus' ministry, and that those then gradually morphed into uh, concerns for moral purity as more significant than ritual purity, that there were uh, Jewish literary and rhetorical forms that could be discerned behind the longer sermons in the Gospel of John, so that we don't just write those off as too different from anything in the synoptics uh, to be accepted, that in his passion narrative, details such as Rome having taken away the right of capital punishment from the Jews, explaining why the Jews who had already a capital verdict of blasphemy had to involve Pilate and the, the Roman government, chronological differences, or so it was argued that you find in John, and again, the dot, dot, dot keeps the list going for a while, that these could be seen as uh, likely historical and needed to be integrated into any historical Jesus work. Very good. And the exciting discovery, if I could put it that way, that, that you're presenting here is that when you follow this method which to me was kind of fresh because I'm more exposed to third questers and sure. like the super heavy synoptic emphasis, but like this, this method of subtracting out from the gospel of John, the main themes, you know, you're left with this, this sort of accidental information, if that's a good way to put it, that almost everyone would have to agree is historical. And when you just sort of concentrate that, what he, what he's not focusing on, and you concentrate that, you're like, oh, wow, this is, like, Jesus must have really presented himself and thought of himself and acted in a way that, you know, really emphasized purification. And that has implications for the church today, right? 
It does. And it's not as if you come up with something that contradicts or even is foreign to uh, the synoptic gospels. It takes what rises at best to the level of a, a fairly minor motif in the synoptic gospels and says, maybe this was a bigger deal than we realized, especially early on for Jesus. We read the story of the healing of the leper that's in all three synoptic gospels where Jesus deliberately touches the man and thereby, according to not just Pharisaic tradition, but the laws of Leviticus themselves, incurs uncleanness. But no, he cleanses the leper instead. He allows the hemorrhaging woman to touch the hem of his garment, making him un. But no, he feels that power has gone out from him to cleanse the woman. He touches the corpse of Jairus' daughter. This is the guy who has already showed he can heal somebody at a distance. Just say the word and he'll be healed. It's not like this was part of his routine. He didn't have to do it. There must be a point that he's demonstrating. But we don't think, we have no analogy in modern Western culture to ritual uncleanness. So we don't think about this element. He pulls Jairus' daughter up, but lo and behold, instead of his hand becoming leprous, as sometimes happened to Old Testament people who <laughs> touched the wrong things, she is awake. She's arisen from the dead. In the much more limited context of Jesus' meals, I wrote a book in the, in the mid-2000s called Contagious Holiness, Jesus' Meals with Sinners, where he associates with all the wrong people, but again, believes that um, holiness can be exuded in such a winsome way that it actually becomes more catching, more contagious than uh, the corruption that his society feared would come from all of these sinners. That was a very narrow study just of Jesus' meals. It didn't even include the Lord's Supper. And, and uh, was that primarily focused on the synoptics? And it was a little tiny bit from John, but not much. Um, so this is kind of rounding out the rest of that material, even though that's really not is. what your intention was, but it was the result of the that's methodology. That's exactly, right. exactly right. What would happen if the church, especially as a church. I understand why parents are concerned. Their teenagers hang out with the wrong, wrong crowd. They're going to be inappropriately influenced by them. I'm not talking about that. But what if the church as a community of enough mature people who are not going to be tempted to go off and become drug addicts and prostitutes and extortioners, et cetera, et cetera, were to find ways, as every now and then you hear about people doing, to intentionally associate with those folks for good and godly intentions. It's a largely underutilized vision and mission. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's so powerful. Your ending of the book, so good. Love the questions. I love the challenge that you lay down for the church. 
And you, you, you end by saying, see, this historical Jesus stuff does produce some fruit, you know, so there. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of like an apologetic ending for the whole enterprise of uh, Bible-believing people jumping in and participating in the, uh, in the field. I think that's, that's well said. So how can uh, people learn more about you or follow your work? Click on Amazon and find a ton of things I've written. I don't have a, a personal website, so. Uh, Do you have some classes on uh, Logos? or? There are some things on Logos that I've done. There are some video series that I've done, both for them as well as for Zondervan. With some of the books that I've written for Zondervan, there are accompanying video series. But uh, I'm one of these people who would rather spend my time researching and writing and let others figure out how to disseminate it and popularize it and learn the latest technology. And how many books do you think you've written? Just uh, guess. Uh, if you count those that I have co-authored or edited, I think we're just above 30. 30 books. Holy cow. That's incredible. But, but I'm not a Hindu. You're not Even what? though I like to say holy cow also. <laughs> You're not a Hindu. Okay. <laughs> Well, thanks for talking with me today. I so appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Well, that brings this interview to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 513, The Historical Jesus and the Gospel of John, and leave your feedback there. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, if you'd like to hear another episode with Craig Blomberg in it, I, I played out a presentation he did years ago based on his book, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, which essentially surveys a biblical theology of handling money in the scriptures. And believe it or not, that is podcast number four, where I played out that lecture. And this is a topic that is totally unrelated to the quest for the historical Jesus, but kind of gives you a sense for who Craig Blomberg is, that he is not just interested in the scholarly world, he's also interested in the practical world as well. In this presentation, he suggested the idea of a graduated tithe, whereby you assess your giving at the end of the year or the beginning of the year or whenever, and you say to yourself, can I increase this by a percentage, by a, a, a small amount? And uh, you have to listen to the podcast episode, but like really an astounding faith position that Blomberg has staked out there for himself and his family as far as giving goes, and uh, really has served as an example to me personally, where I've done this each year and uh, have been able to increase little by little like a frog in a kettle. And uh, this is something we did talk about <laughs> before I started the recording, but I figured I'd mention it here in case any of you are interested in hearing more Craig Blomberg. Just look at podcast number four, a Biblical Theology of Finance, and and I think his words there are very practical and helpful for all of us today as well. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, everybody, for listening in to the end. I'll catch you next week. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitudio.org. We'll see you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.